So Ezra chapter 7, start um, on page 338. After these things, during the reign of Ataxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of I practice this one. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the, the high, ch- sorry, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Ataxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of, the, of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and it, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Ataxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Ataxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the high priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You were sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and the priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold, in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Ataxerxes, order all the treasurers of Trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of oil, a hundred, sorry, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. 
Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. Well, let's pray and think about this good passage and uh, see what we can get out of Ezra 7 and 8. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for this day and for the time we have together as your people. We pray that you would help us to understand something of uh, your unfolding plans throughout history and how you work in people's lives and in our lives. Please help us to benefit from this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every now and again I see things which make me feel like saying to people, good on you, mate, you've done a good job there. Noble ambitions in action. Often I feel a bit that way when I see footage of um, Fred Hollows in some of the uh, little short clips, those commercials where people who are once blind but now can see. And then hearing Fred say things like, every eye is an eye. Operating on anyone's eyes just as important as operating on the Prime Minister or the King. Apparently Fred uh, heard about a civil war in Eritrea a few years back and he heard that there weren't very many eye doctors at all uh, helping the people out there who were suffering from eye problems. And this is what he said about the situation. Each year in Africa, about two and a half million people go blind. And they just go blind. They sit around in their huts. It's a dreadful thought, isn't it, to think about that sort of situation. I sat there when I read that quote and I covered my eyes over for a while sitting at my desk. And even uh, two minutes with hands over my eyes wasn't very much fun. And how bored would one get just hanging around a hut uh, for the rest of their lives without being able to see? And so Fred uh, put his ambition, his noble ambition, into action and he got a team mobilised to go over and help out in Eritrea. He, he made lenses, uh, I think, to stop cataract blindness. And each week in uh, my wife's optometry practice where she works, uh, someone comes in. Every week she says that at least a couple of people and talk about the work of Fred Hollows. And that was over 18 years ago that he died. He's left a pretty significant impact. It's impressive, isn't it, when people uh, put their noble ambitions into action? And I, I take my hat off to them. However, I must say, it does sad me to think that some people might do great things, 
but not with respect to the glory of God. They might be doing great things, but with no credit to the God who has made us and given us resources and the gifts and abilities that we have to do good things. And I think that's where, as we look at the book of Ezra, a character like Ezra stands apart. He stands as a, a different kind of person to other, perhaps, great people who don't necessarily want to glorify God. Today we're invited to look at Ezra and his life and his character and we can think about his life and how faithful he was and then maybe reflect back to our own lives and ask some good questions like, whose glory will we seek in our lives? Are we going to stand with Ezra and seek his aims to serve the Lord or or are we going to be self-seeking? Well, Ezra lived at a time when there were some very big problems for Israel. We saw this come up in uh, chapter 5 when the enemies of Israel asked about the the temple and why it needed to be rebuilt. And they said, because of our fathers, our fathers angered the God of heaven. He handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. And so Ezra lived at a time when uh, he grew up in exile in the wake of a disaster where the people have been uprooted from the land, cast out. It was a desperate situation which they experienced, a a dreadful situation. From time to time we see um, footage of uh, places overseas in Africa where people are starving and it's a horrible situation we're presented with. Well, we hear about uh, Rwanda and two tribes brutalising each other. Well, if we had um, a documentary that went back in time where we could see the destruction of Israel, uh, we'd see some horror like this. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 28 verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. A fierce-looking nation without respect for the old, or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. And then down to verse 62 we read, You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number. Because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Now God is faithful to his promises. He was faithful to bless those people who loved him and served him and to curse those who rejected and rebelled against him. And it might have been difficult for a person like Ezra to lose perspective on life in the wake of this kind of disaster and think, has God really got things under his control? As if God's really in control when we've just seen this horror story happen and he's lived out the other side of it. Well, I wonder if you've ever been tempted to think in those terms as well. When things don't always go your way, are you tempted to think, well, maybe God's losing his grip on reality. Maybe he's losing his grip on control in life. 
when we're in the midst of confusion, it's okay, isn't it, sometimes when things are going well, but it's in the midst of confusion when things don't seem to be working out the way we planned them to or expected them to, that's when we start to question whether God's really in control. Well, what we continue to learn from this book of Ezra is God has his sovereign hand over all events. And we see this even at the very beginning of the book. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 1, we read in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is chapter 1, verse 1, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. In another translation, it says, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And what we see is that at one time when Nebuchadnezzar had sacked Jerusalem and stolen the vessels that were in the temple that adorned it, he took them out of that temple and he took them back to his temple in Babylon. And it was almost a way of saying, I won't be too flippant, but uh, our God's better than your God and uh, we beat you. I was going to say, yeah, 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 but that's not quite how I think it was in those days. Um, getting a bit too ridiculous there but this is a serious time and Nebuchadnezzar's taken the vessels back to Babylon and now we see something that uh, they probably didn't quite anticipate although it was prophesied by Jeremiah uh, and Cyrus has brought those vessels back to Jerusalem the temple's being rebuilt and in a sense we're seeing that the exile has finished Well, by the time we get to chapter 7, a few years have rolled by from King Cyrus. It's gone from King Cyrus to King Darius to King Artaxerxes. And what we see is that King Artaxerxes has moved also, God's moved in his heart, to bring more vessels back. So we'll see that in verse 19 of chapter 7. Deliver, this is what Artaxerxes said to um, our friend Ezra. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And Ezra said in chapter 7, verse 27, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. And so it's been in the midst of a turning point of sorrow living in another land that Ezra is seeing God stir up the hearts of these kings to send these vessels back uh, and support the temple. They wouldn't have thought that was going to happen, but under God's sovereign hand, these things did. And so today we're sort of reminded again that God is in control of things even when we're sceptical about that, even when we're in the midst of difficulties and it's hard to see uh, how we have a, will have a future, uh, we see that God is still remaining in control. Often it's easier though, isn't it, when we uh, look back on our life but a few years ago when we thought we were going to go under and how God has worked to change things and he's brought us through it. It's much easier but at the time it's difficult to see. And we know that for Christians, it's not just true of um, God's people in the past that God was in control. Even for Christians now, for those who love the Lord, God works together for the good. We'll have a look at uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You don't have to turn it up, I'll read it to you. It says, we know, this is Paul writing, that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're in doubt and you love the Lord, just remember he works things out for good if you love him. But as we think about God's purposes for our lives, it's important for us to keep taking stock on our aims and ambitions in life, isn't it? Whether we want to do God's will. Well, we see something of that from Ezra. He's committed and concerned about doing God's will. We're at point three in my outline if you're following along. I'll have a drink quickly. Well, for the first time in a book that takes his name, we get introduced to Ezra and find out a few of the things that he's got to say. In chapter chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, after these things, we're being taken back to the idea that the temple has now, <coughs> pardon me, started to be rebuilt. <coughs> that was uh, the temple has been rebuilt by this stage. And then we see that uh, during the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra comes up from Babylon in verse 6. Let's find out a bit about him in verse 6 of chapter 7. He was a teacher, well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We'll skip down to verse 8. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He'd begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So we're introduced to someone who seems to be a very good character. In fact, he reminds us of the person in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the Lord in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So Ezra is a guy who loves God's word. He loves the Bible, he loves God's law, and he wants to serve God. Let's zoom in on what King Taxerxes wrote about with respect to Ezra in chapter 7, verse 25. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess... Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. And we are invited to see Ezra's response to this situation. We pick it up in 7 verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. 
Well, Ezra strikes us as a man who wants to glorify God. He knows God, doesn't he? He's got great thoughts about God. He understands that God's put it into the heart of the king to bring these uh, vessels back over and to decorate God's temple. And he knows that he's actually received favour from the king because of God's work in the king's life. And he knows that the Lord's hands upon him. Ezra is concerned to be of good character, to, to love God and to live his way. And he's also committed to taking up other godly people to lead God's people over in Israel. So what can we take away from a guy like Ezra? Well, to start with, he actually loves God's, God's word. And uh, that's, that's an encouragement for us as well. It can be hard, can't it, to sit down and spend time reading the Bible and working through things which are sometimes a bit difficult to read and understand. And that's probably why it's good having Bible study groups to be part of, isn't it? Because uh, in a group we can talk about things and make it meaningful and work through things that we don't understand. And it keeps us accountable to read our Bibles. Sometimes if we, if we didn't meet up to read Bibles as a group, we might, it might drop off the radar a bit. But Ezra is a guy who, who does love God's Word. I've always appreciated people who've taken the time to teach me. My teachers and I used to get on pretty well. I learnt a lot of things. But I was particularly grateful for those people who took the time to open God's word to me and explain it so that I could understand it and understand the Lord Jesus and build my life on him and his words. The good news is, friends, we've all got a role to do that with each other. As Christians, we each have a job of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And Paul tells the Colossian church, and he tells us as well, that we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. When we're reading God's word, we're actually correcting each other and we're rebuking one another. We're rebuking ourselves. And even as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, we're singing and teaching each other the good things about God as well. So we've got a, a responsibility to love God's word ourselves and also to teach one another. And that's a concern that Ezra had. Well, something else that's encouraging from this chapter is that there were many other people who wanted to love God and serve him. One of the reasons why we've had all these funny names to read in this book is because it's, a, it's, it's showing us that there's a whole lot of people who want to come back to Israel and to serve the Lord. Ezra is uh, invited to actually appoint magistrates, judges and people who know God's laws. And so what we get is this picture that it's not just a one-man band, it's not just Ezra uh, and him alone, but there's a, a lot of people that are committed to serving God. And as we think about uh, our life as God's people, it's, the Christian life is not a solo man experience, it's not a one-man band. Uh, it's, a, it's a life in community where we're not just looking to uh, one leader, we're actually in together as the people of God who are legitimate members of his family and we all have a role in praising the Lord. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 9, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
being the people of God is less like an individual sport, like sailboarding. You know, it's just you and the board and the sail and it's hard to stay upright unless you're pretty good at it. It's a bit more like uh, being part of a rowing crew. Has anybody here been part of a, a rowing crew? Okay, not too many folks. Okay, well, when I was in year 12, we did a bit of rowing. It was quite a good experience. We uh, get on these thin boats with seats that slide back and forth on rails, a bit different to the surf boats where you have to apparently um, slide just on the seat. And uh, yeah, anyway, won't get into that. But the, uh, the sculling, you get some rollers on the seats. They slide back and forth. It's pretty good. But it's, it's pretty good when people pull together and you can feel this big, big thrust as the boat sort of, you know, virtually leaps out of the water with every stroke. But if you've got um, someone who's, you know, a bit inexperienced, what they can get is what's described as catching a crab. And that's where they don't, they pull their oar, but they don't sort of reef it out of the water in time and the oar flops forward along the boat's edge and it tends to whack the person who's actually doing the paddling. And we had a rowing teacher who was filling us in on uh, his days as a university rower and how one of his mates in medicine caught a crab and it actually launched him out of the boat and uh, that finished off his race. Now, just to get us from the uh, ridiculous back to the more sublime, uh, I think this is probably a bigger picture of, um, of what God's church or God's people ought to be like. They're pulling together and it's all working pretty well. It's only when there's shenanigans that there's problems and it destabilizes the boat and i think as the people of god god wants us to be a mature church not like the church at corinth this is what he said to the church at corinth but i brothers could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in christ for while there's jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. He's saying, while there's quarrelling and fighting and jealousy and factions, you're just babies. You're just being little babies. And instead, he, he calls on the church to live a different way, to be the people of God united with their faith in Jesus and united in their love for one another. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, it was good to see that there were people in the Old Testament who were faithful, that wanted to come back, love the Lord and live his way, and that Ezra was part of a bigger group that wanted to do that. And it's good for us to be people uh, who want to live God's way as well. Ezra was someone who did love God's word. He wanted to uh, dwell on it and teach it. He was a bit like the person in Psalm 1, as I said earlier. And God also calls us to be people who are sensitive to his word as well. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will will we renew our mind as we keep on uh, thinking 
from God's point of view as it's revealed to us in the scriptures. That's the challenge for us to keep on understanding life from God's point of view. And may we be people who are sensitive uh, and love God's word like Ezra did. May it be the thing that reshapes our life, our ambitions, uh, how we'll spend our energies and our times. Well, Ezra, we see, um, and his friends, don't have a mere armchair faith. They're not sort of uh, living as God's people at a distance. They have their faith put into action. And we start to see some of that action in chapter 8 of Ezra. We didn't read all of this in the Bible reading time, but we're going to have a bit of a look now. So if you kindly turn to chapter 8, verse 21. Let's have a look at how Ezra and the faithful put their trust in God to the test. Ezra 8, verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. I'll move down to verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out, this is on verse 33, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites. Jozebad, son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, son of Binu. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at the time. And so we see that the people have a living faith in the Lord. And that's expressed in their prayerfulness and also their decision not to loot some of the, um, the gold and the goods that they've been taken over. They've been trustworthy with that. And as God's people, we're invited also to live out our faith in a meaningful way with the Lord as well. I'm sure many of you already um, come to the Lord in prayer when you're travelling off, setting off on a travel somewhere. And that's the right kind of expression of a, of a living trust that we have in God. It's a good thing to do. Well, towards the end of our text, we start to see that the community uh, really responds the right way to God. We'll pick this up in chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. Well, Ezra and a new group of people have uh, been zealous to maintain the sacrificial system that God handed down. This was the way that they were to actually stay in uh, tune with God, to keep in step with God. They could deal with their sin by offering the sacrifices and go home 
knowing that they'd been forgiven, that they'd done business with God. It looks like quite a good point, doesn't it, in their history? In fact, it looks a little bit like the time when uh, there was a high point earlier at Solomon's time when the temple was made and dedicated to God. Yet the trouble with that high point, even at the time of Solomon, was that there were seeds of trouble already that had been sown. And Solomon had taken too much gold and too many horses from Egypt and foreign wives and their devotion to other gods was uh, ready to turn his heart away from God. And so we're left thinking even at this good moment in the book of Ezra, what does the future hold? What does it hold for this group? Well, Scott's going to be filling us in a little bit more on some of the challenges that they're facing in the next couple of chapters. But we can at least say that Ezra is on the right track. He's committed to living as God's man back in the land under God's rule. They've experienced something of God's fulfilment to return them back from exile. But it doesn't seem that uh, the, the glory of the temple is quite the same as it was. Has the temple had the glory of the Lord returned to it, the Shekinah glory of God, has it come back to the temple? Well, I'm not sure it has. And the trouble with um, this return from exile is that the people are still living in exile of sorts because they're still under the rule of another empire. They're still slaves, in a sense, underneath the Persians. They're not ruling in their own right under God. But Ezra is still aiming in the right direction. And the Bible tells us that there is an even greater deliverance to come. And it comes partly through, well, basically what we saw in our Christmas presentation play the other night. When the Lord Jesus comes, he comes to bring in the end times. He comes to bring in the supernatural new age, the age of the resurrection and the new creation. And he's also described as the firstborn from the dead of the first of that resurrected age. And so in a sense there is a similarity between our station in life and in Ezra's. He um, hadn't yet experienced the final wrap-up of God's plans uh, and although Jesus has come, God's complete plans for his universe haven't come to an end yet. As they say, um, we've still got some way to go. But while we remain and be patient for the return of the Lord and the end of the ages to come, it's not a bad aim for us, is it, to take a leaf out of Ezra's book and to see someone who loves the Lord and is seeking to have an impact in the world uh, as God's man. I read earlier about Fred Hollows and how he had some noble ambitions and uh, there's some wonderful things that he's helped to do and accomplish and it is excellent to have seen. But in some ways, it, it could have been better. <laughs> Listen to what uh, I read in a newspaper article that uh, talked a bit about Fred and, and his um, zeal to bring uh, light to, and sight to people who are blind. The headline said, The glorious hymn, Amazing Grace, declares, Was blind, but now I see. Fred Hollows put it another way, Sight is life. It says, and like the divine grace of the song, Hollows brought sight ultimately to ultimately millions of people 
in Australia and across the world. And accordingly, he has been almost deified since his death at this time, it was 15 years ago. Indeed, his name is substituted for God's in his own foundation slogan, for Fred's sake. It's the sort of joke he would appreciate. Fred Hollows, who once studied for the priesthood, died an atheist. In the end, he cared too much about humans to devote his life to God. Well, I think it's a sort of a bittersweet ending there. He did some wonderful things, but it wasn't at the end of the day done for the glory of the Lord. That sort of marks him out from a different kind of guy to what we see of Ezra, who wants to have some zeal and do some good things, have some noble ambitions, but actually have it for the glory of the Lord, to see these people loving God and living his way. And I think we can take something from Fred that it is good to love God's people, uh, the creatures that God's made, but certainly not to love God is, um, is really falling short. And so I think the challenge for us is as we think about our lives as God's people is to think about whether we want to make our aims in life bound up with glorifying God or whether we're more concerned to glorifying ourselves. Uh, certainly we've been um, redeemed at a great price by our Lord Jesus. We enjoy his once for all perfect sacrifice. We're not under the old covenant system that was uh, incomplete if you like. We enjoy life with God through what Jesus has done. May we be people who want to seek God's glory uh, and enjoy having an impact in the world under him for his glory. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for this time that we've had to consider uh, the life of Ezra and how he was zealous for your word, that he loved your word, that he wanted to live it out and teach others. Lord, we thank you that we can see there's a a community that was um, bound together, united in their love for you and your law and your word. And Father, as we think about the kind of community that we are, we pray that you'd help us to be a mature one. Lord, we pray that whatever we do in the world, that we might not do things simply for our own glory, but we'd recognise and remember that we are your creatures and that we've received our gifts and abilities life and health and every good and strength, all from you. And that Whatever we're using uh, is because you've given it to us. We know that we're not from ourselves, Lord, but that you have given us all things. And we pray that if we do any good in the world, it might be to your glory. Lord, we thank you that uh, people can do wonderful things and help open the sight of blind people's eyes. But Lord, we pray also for the news of salvation that it goes out through the world because we know it's important to have physical healing but to be spiritually healed and to have life with you is above all the most important thing. And so Lord we pray for our own lives that we be not only dedicated to doing good but that we be engaged some way, somehow in your mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Lord we pray that you continue to work in our lives and we pray that you'd help us to be people who would love your word and we ask for your help to continue to be rebuked by it as we read it and to be changed and to grow as more holy people and we pray that we'll continue to meet up with one another in small groups to do that as well. We pray for these things in Jesus name. Amen.